This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri. And in this episode, I'm going to be sharing a panel discussion from one of the working groups at the PMENA conference that happened in Tucson, Arizona. So this was the conference for the North American chapter of the International Group for the Psychology of Math Ed. It's a great conference, um, a now a bilingual conference, and one that has great dancing and a good mix of research and interactions. And they have these working groups, and one of the working groups is on conceptions and consequences of what we call argumentation, justification, and proof. And this working group was organized by Megan Staples, Jill Newton, Carl Costco, Anna Connor, Michelle Cirillo, and Kristen Bieta. And at PMENA, they had a panel discussion with some scholars, and I'm going to be able to share with you as this special episode that panel discussion. And if you want to catch up on the workings of this group, they actually started last year focusing on argumentation, justification, and proof. And I do have two episodes from that working group last year. Episode 1519 has Keith Weber's presentation at the working group, and episode 1520 has the panel discussion from last year. This year, we have three panelists that they put together for the working group. Eric Knuth, who's at the University of Wisconsin and in the future will be at the University of Texas. Orit Zaslavsky, who's at New York University, and also David Yap, who's at the University of Idaho. And those three panelists are the ones that you're going to hear in this episode. They are going to be making remarks on a short set of questions. The questions were these, which construct, argumentation, justification, or proof, do they use the most in their work? what informed that choice of which construct they use, in what ways are their conceptions of that construct still evolving as they work, and what are their views on the need for researchers to develop unique definitions for these constructs. So right now, the next voice you hear will be that of Eric Knuth, followed by Orit Zavzlaski and David Yap. Um, So in response to the the first question of which construct uh, do I use most in my work, and uh, my initial response is just is none of the above a choice. I, I don't tend to use any of the, the three kind of combinations, but really think about, uh, don't see them as being mutually exclusive. And, and much of my work is focused primarily on justifying and proving and thinking about both of those activities collectively with maybe the latter being a bit more about when the justifying activity uh, leads to proof. By proof, I typically think of it as just an attempt to treat the general case, so showing that some mathematical phenomenon is always true. How do I define this construct? So I think about justifying and proving as the act of both trying to figure out why something is true and showing that it is true. So so to some degree, it reminds me a little bit of Perel and Souter's kind of ascertaining and persuading and thinking about trying to figure out both why an activity is true and then showing that it's true. When I talk about figuring out why, I don't necessarily mean gaining insight in the sense of Gilahana's kind of proofs that explain. For example, being able to figure out using algebra to figure out why something is true can serve that purpose as well as showing that it is true. Uh, What has informed the choice? I think that justifying and proving seems more inclusive of the entire activity. So the, the combination includes activity that falls, that we might consider falling short 
of a proof or may not actually, even if continued, may not lead to a viable proof, but it's all part of that activity of justifying and proving. So I kind of, again, see both of those being as more inclusive of the, the kind of activities that I'm interested in with the work that students do. In what ways are my conceptions of the phenomena central to my research still evolving? So one of the things that I think as a, as a field, and myself in particular, when you think that despite all the work that's gone on you know, for a decade or two in the area of proof, students continue to struggle at all levels and teachers continue to struggle with how to teach proof. And so to take, you know, if one were to take a pessimistic look at it, we really haven't made a whole lot of progress that students don't seem to be doing you know, significantly better now than they were 20 years ago. So I think one of the things that, I think that spurs you know, research to be thinking about, are there other ways of thinking about this phenomena of you know, engaging in proof or proving or justifying whatever, however we want to phrase it, but maybe we need to kind of take a different tack and look at it in some more nuanced ways from what we've been uh, doing. And you know, whether that be through you know, teaching experiments with particular interventions or, uh, so when I think about my current work. So in Orit, the project that Kristen had mentioned, Orit and I have a project with Amy Ellis right now where we're examining the role examples play in proving related activities. And so by proving related activities mean things like exploring conjectures, developing conjectures, justifying conjectures, proving conjectures. So all of that kind of activity. And we're taking the view that example-based reasoning can be leveraged to help students in learning to prove rather than viewing what's often viewed with example-based reasoning as an obstacle to overcome, that we want students to understand the limitations of examples and then quickly move on to kind of being able to produce deductive arguments. And so I think this, at least from my perspective, this is an area that, you know, really given students' continued struggles and teachers' continued struggles to teach proof, that kind of looking for the kinds of activities that we know students participate in and that we know as people that engage in mathematical activity ourselves that examples in this particular case can play an important role in you know, helping students learn to prove. So what are my views on the need for research to establish unique definitions for these constructs? So my initial thought is that I'm not so sure we need unique definitions for the constructs but at least definitions in how the constructs are being used by the particular researchers. So, you know, for example, in my own work, when I read, you know, Andreas and Gabriel Stylianidis kind of definition or the way they use the term reasoning and proving, that doesn't kind of deter from my being able to make sense of the work that they're doing and incorporate it into any of the research that I do. But they, you know, define it in the particular way that they're using it, and so I think that is more kind of that we don't necessarily need unique definitions, but at least definitions of how we're all thinking about whether it's justifying, proving, and so forth. All right. So the first question. First of all, I have to say that uh, the choice of having Eric and me on the same panel. <laughs> Luckily, I have my PowerPoint, so you know I thought of it independently. But uh, we probably are coming from the same uh, school of thought, and we do we, we think a lot similarly. I mean, with of course some differences. So uh, to me, it's not an either or, and it related. It reminds me. I mean, somehow connects to yesterday's talk about divides and differences. So my view, and it touches a little bit. Of, on the last question, you won't be surprised with my answer there, is that 
there are differences and they could complement each other and we should probably bridge across them and so on, but I wouldn't worry about having to choose one over the other. I use all of the above plus reasoning and um, mostly proof and proving, but in the sense I think that Eric said, I see justification as leading to sometimes being partly or partial proof or things like that, reasoning or arguments, we talk about arguments. And just to, for an example to show how this is used in the literature, so uh, Sarah and Harrell talk about almost interchangeable about uh, proofs and justification. So it's not that some people talk about this and some of, of that, but people in the field connect these things and talk about them. Uh, and just another, arguments, reasoning, line of reasoning. These are terms that people who deal with proof include, so it's not uh, mutually exclusive. I see proof as a meta-concept. In a way, I studied the concept of definition, how it evolves, and you don't find a dictionary definition of what a definition is. I look at proof similarly. It's not a definition, a, defi a well-defined construct. It's something you learn as from a lot of experience of doing proof. And with proof, it's even much more complicated and complex than talking about definitions. In essence, we know that there's not an agreed-upon view what proof is among mathematicians, philosophers, and so on, so it's not so just looking for a definition would be problematic. So I like to think of what aspects of proof I use in my work. It's not about a definition. So um, what Eric mentioned, I see proof as an act of convincing oneself, persuading someone else about a truth of some claim. I see proof a lot uh, in removing doubt. And for that, if we're talking in terms of pedagogy, uh, you also need to create doubt in order to remove it. So that's part of creating the need to prove. So I see that part of proof and our responsibility in creating such uh, opportunities. I favor uh, proofs that have explanatory elements. And I realize that, you know, uh, the debate of what is, is this an, a proof that explains or just proves, it's not about these distinctions, but, it, but we can look at a proof that gives us more of an explanation why this works and not just shows that it works. And I think that helps us in understanding what it is we're proving. I recognize the need to bridge between informal and formal uh, ways of proving. In that sense, uh, I look very closely to what's called generic examples, but in general examples as possible tools for conveying the main ideas of a proof. So this is, as you see, not a definition, but a sort of a sense of where my work um, touches on proof and justification. Just questions, I, I'm, what, if we're talking about classroom, not just the school, but also undergrad and so on, questions that elicit proving and which I really try to use. Uh, why, how do we know, what is the meaning of, can you convince, and so on. This may be too long. I have an example of how mathematicians, maybe I'll just go this real fast. 
we interviewed as part of the joint project uh, Eric mentioned mathematicians about the view of the status they give for generic proving that students provide and this is again a different way of seeing disagreement in the field so it's not just about what a proof is but what an acceptable proof is what counts as an acceptable proof so one of the things we try to get a sense of since we're so fond of uh, example-based reasoning we went to see what mathematicians think about it and we provided one example of it was a hypothetical student we it drew on something some of the findings we had not identical but it was like a, here's a, an example we provided a conjecture of what numbers uh, have an odd number of factors and I won't let you start working on it but it turns out that after trying out you could come up with a conjecture that any perfect square has an odd number of factors. When you ask people to prove it they try to go off into symbolic presentations. It's really not an easy task. However, a student took, for example, after she came up the stories, that after she came up with this conjecture, she tried 36, and this is what she did. She tried to find all the factors, and then she said, 36 has nine factors, and nine is an odd number. The oddness of nine comes from the fact that every factorization results in a pair of factors, and the factorization 36 times six, six times six results in only one additional distinct factor. A pair plus one is always odd. And the question to the mathematician is, was, do you, would you accept this as a proof? So we asked, do you consider, we asked another question, these arguments as a valid proof? And the interesting thing is that response, I mean, maybe it's not interesting, but at least that's what we got, and it's, it's, it has a point to say that we don't just have a lack of a unifying definition, but even the judgment of varies, as you can see, between saying, oh, this is a valid proof, it's clear that the student knows exactly uh, why this works, opposed up to the point where it doesn't count unless you do it in a formal way. So we have like different views, and I think this gives something about the um, notion, construct of proof, proving, and so on. Uh, just to, to mention, I think, I can't remember which of the brothers it is, <laughs> still in that, I think Andreas may be wrong, but they he offers a way of looking at proof that is a little bit parallel to the, what more formally uh, is common to think of proof. It's useful in a way to keep in mind, but in terms of actually working, it tends more to, to reflect the formal proof and doesn't uh, reflect other more informal, but it does. It could use, be useful in guiding our thoughts. In what ways is my conception of phenomena? Okay, so what I'm still thinking a lot of how to facilitate the need to proof, so things Proof is not a ritual thing that the teacher asks and the students need to do. Something that comes more from an Gershon would say, Gershon Arel would say, an intellectual need, a necessity principle, and so on. I reflect a lot on my work in terms of task design because designing tasks that help us reach these aspects that I mentioned is not an easy task in itself. 
And it's an iterative task for researchers, for mathematicians, for math educators, not to mention for teachers. So this is something Eric and I are still thinking how to move forward and maybe articulate more guiding principles, but bridging between the inform and informa, inform and formal aspects is not an easy task. And uh, another thing that's also reflected in my work with Eric and my own is to try to extend beyond the implementation to other contexts, if we're talking about different population, uh, different topics, and so on. So these are things that are still needed and we're very much interested. And the last question, uh, do we need a unified, unique. unique, sorry. I don't think research should nor can they reach such an agreement, mostly based on what I just presented. I, I, I don't think it's even possible, and I really don't see the need. And going back to what Anna Sfrat said yesterday, uh, researchers should be clear with respect, and it's similar to what Eric said, with what they mean by uh, what they're talking about, and acknowledge the differences and have conversations about it, but um, there should be conversations that contribute to a shared meaning across, but it doesn't mean that what I see in it has to be more influential than others, but we really need to be able to talk about these things, and that's going back to the divides and differences. Thank you. So I do want to start by saying, so this is an eighth grade student's work, it comes from the LAMP project with eighth graders, where we explicitly teach proving, so we need a definition of proving. In fact, we sometimes say the content is the proof, which I can talk more at another point about that I'm writing about now. So convincing and explaining aren't necessarily always key to my definitions. I want to start by separating a, a definition of a mathematical term that becomes an object or concept that becomes an object from trying to define proof. In mathematics, when we define a term, it's an if and only if statement that you can't really say is true or false because it's a characterization, meaning if you use this term, you see these properties, as you all know, and only if you see these properties do you use this term. That's a different type of defining than what we're looking for here. I think we can define proof in our particular purposes. I have to if I'm going to run an intervention where I teach kids to prove. I have to be able to define it so that they have some standard to reflect upon. So here's some, I don't want to really call them char characteristics, but some things we talk about and communicate to what constitutes proof. So the first thing I'd say for my work now, I've changed around a bit where argument I define very simply as a claim and support for that claim. Much of the work doesn't, in, in proving doesn't consider the claim someone's making. In other words, there's a proof to a statement there without considering what the kid is claiming at all. And I've really had a hard time reading over the years, reflecting on what they learned from some of the studies without knowing what the student thinks they claim. So we always have a claim, and you can see it in the student's work. This student is actually responding to the way we typically give statements in our work, saying, Sally believes that whenever A squared is even, um, a has to be even or something like that, write a viable argument for or against. Sometimes we have them come up with their own generalizations or existing statements, but if we're going to give them a statement, we're going to write it that way where they don't know whether it's true or false and they at least have to claim yes or no. So we have to have a claim. Then argumentation I define as any activity in pursuit of an argument. 
any and all. So that's way too broad, but um, you know, there's too many layers in terms of proving, like are using abduction or using deduction. It'd be tough to write all those down. And I like the term viable argument as opposed to proof as common course. So I've started using viable argument. So first of all, when I look at an argument to decide, and the students to look at an argument to decide if it's viable, there has to be some unambiguous claim that can be identified in the student's work. Before we even start, there has to be some claim that we can agree on the student is making. Next, I separate into two things, existence claims versus generalizations. I think math education literature has wildly overlooked existence claims and almost hadn't mentioned that counterexamples are arguments of an existence claim. Uh, by the way, a counterexample is not a viable argument or a proof against the generalization unless it also shows that the example has the desired properties. So some people say a counterexample disproves. No, it doesn't unless you show that it has two properties, meets the conditions and not the conclusions. So simply giving a counterexample in our work without some wording to tell us how you know your example meets the conditions and not the conclusions of the generalization does not constitute viable argument. So existence claims, if you can argue through them deductively or with another method, but in general, most often exists a proof or a viable argument existence claim gives me a candidate and shows me it has the desired properties. Now let's get to the tough one, which is proofs of generalizations. I start at layers. So the first thing to define to the students, and this came about partly from this student's work. So we've had three iterations of the LAMP project. I'll talk about why this motivated me to find proof as eliminating the possibility of counterexamples. This has been very fruitful to me to work to say, that's what a proof is. It eliminates the possibility of counterexamples. Now, how do we do that? Well, what you're doing is you're showing that no cases of the conditions and not the conclusion exist. And we actually build models of the conditions and not the conclusions. The kids do it to say, did you eliminate the possibility of this being out there even if you hadn't considered it? So some of us think about direct arguments that show whenever you satisfy the condition, you also have the conclusion. This is one of my problems with the explaining why terminology, is mathematics is often also. If I have the conditions, I also have the conclusion. There may not be a causal. Uh, the psychology literature shows how causal reasoning can be problematic and people thinking there's always some cause, you see. So um, every time you have the conditions, do you have the conclusion? That eliminates counterexamples. They do need to pay attention to logical necessity, but it may be rather informal here, and I'll talk about why this has logical necessity in it, even though that may be informal. We teach them direct, indirect arguments, and some of our students write very good contrapositive and contradiction arguments in the eighth grade. And I'll show you some of that work on Sunday if you come to my talk about arguing that one over the square root of five is irrational with an eighth grader doing that. And, uh, so we're pretty proud of the outcomes, but again, it comes on the frame did you show me that there are no cases of the conditions and not the conclusions? So contrapositive reasoning actually does that directly. Whenever you have not the conclusion, you have no cases of the conditions. At its face value, contradictory reasoning says, let's suppose that a counterexample were out there. You're going to prove to me that that leads to a logical fallacy. So that level of understanding and defining proof in that way has been very helpful for us in getting the kids to say, when do we know if it's proof if we know for sure that we've eliminated the possibility of counterexamples? 
I'm not going to say all eighth grade students grab onto this immediately, but I will say some get very good at this kind of thinking and understanding. So we focus on that in terms of what people might say mode of argumentation, which we can identify, but the kid may have difficult communicating. So there has to be some identifiable mode of argumentation, but the kid may not be aware of it. So again, I'm using that, that even though I've taught undergrad proof classes and graduate math classes, I'm a mathematician by training, I'm, I'm going to focus my work on grade eight because of the teachable model. We also look to see if they're using prior results, which is problematic because then you have to go down to results that should be known at that grade level, say common core standards up through seventh grade, you'd assume all that is prior result, but is it really a prior result for that kid or that community, which brings in some context issues. So there's always going to be that problem, but it's still a trait you can look for. Can you assume this or does the kid assume this as a, as a prior result? Where I'm starting to differ in much of the literature in my work is the referent is becoming less and less important to me. Whether the kid uses a variable or not, the notions of formal proof have now become more meaningless to me than ever. So this is where I may bring some controversy. I really don't care if they use a variable. Rob Ely and I, um, this year in, um, at Studies, um, wrote an article to try to rethink how we're using the term generic example. And we go so far as to say these are just absolute proofs. Right? If you use an example and you appeal to it generically, it's about how you use the example. I don't care if you use the symbol five or the symbol X. Right? So the referent is becoming less important to us. We obviously ask for a foundation, which is our referent from the kids to train them. But judging this as proof based on that referent, whether it's a variable or agrees with somebody's canonical symbol use, is not the standard that we follow. So we feel like we can write down enough to get a reasonable assessment in a list of labels of whether it is a proof or not. I'm gonna get a lot of challenges about this and I expect those and, and, and like those because it helps me. Where am I going with my thinking is the more people challenge, the more I tighten my notions. And so um, we'll go to this um, example a minute to talk about what this student said and what they did and whether we can call it proof or viable argument or whichever term you wish. How are they evolving? Well, they're evolving like both Eric and Orit said, is that how do you teach this stuff? That's how they're evolving is. Um, one thing that concerns me about using mathematicians' conceptions of proof or what they qualify as proof is we don't have enough detail about what they're evaluating at that time. And moreover, no matter what they accept, they all have in their background pretty sophisticated logical structures that they may not mention in that moment. And that gets very confusing about, well, I allow myself to bend the rules because I know what to do, but I do know the rules very clearly. I know propositional and predicate logic very This brings me to what's really helping me is the bottom. Pivotal intermediate conceptions and then looking at conceptions of reasoning and modes of reasoning that can be leveraged towards more sophisticated levels of understanding, but might be invisible to experts who no longer need them. I really like that idea, and this is partly how I analyze this work when we come to it. Um, lastly, on um, do we need unique definitions? Um, I think if you say unique for each one of us, I do like it, as Eric and Ort said, when the author is very clear about what they mean. I think in our community, we need to let go of some of our roots. I would encourage us to look at the articles over the past 20 or 30 years and say, boy, those are helpful, now how can I twist this and quit paying homage 
to the first person that wrote it so I can twist it to make it useful because I think the evidence is it's not very useful. It was useful in getting us thinking, but we really haven't made a lot of progress. So it's time for some very new thinking about how we're going to define it, right? So those of you who have been writing in the area, you, you may experience some of the frustrations I have with reviewers telling you to read something that you've already read 20 times, but now don't feel as relevant. <laughs> so I think we should be very clear about what we mean and have some definitions of proof, argumentation, or justification, but we should also be very, once an author does that, to allow it to be different than what's happened over the 20, 30 years and maybe we'll make progress. I will say one thing on justification. I use it and I use the word a lot. One problem I have with the wording is it doesn't allow me to talk about proof as content or as proof as the thing to be learned if, if you start to, that you have to justify what you're doing. That's more of a purpose. So I worry about its convoluting purposes with what actually constitutes a proof. And that's the problem with convincing as well. It can be a proof and not convince a single person possibly, or, or in some people's definition, maybe not. So I, I have some concerns about that. But with justification, as I work with eighth graders, Right now, argumentation is going on in science class and English class, and they're bringing in conceptions of those classes that are not applicable to my class. For example, I need to support it and cite it. That's the English standard. Back it up, justify your claim by showing someone else has written about that. Well, that's of no merit. <laughs> well, that's of little merit in terms of getting where we want to get in mathematical argument. In Science, they're bringing in critical rationalism is, is actually this term, is that truth is determined by the severity of the test that you apply to your hypothesis. Well, again, that's helpful in mathematics, but it certainly doesn't lead to the type of even explaining if you take that role that, that we're after. So they bring those into the class and we have to separate. And those teachers are using justify a lot, justify your thinking, justify your conclusions. So, so separating those three different types of reasons is problematic. I'm excited about this student's work because I taught this student contrapositive contradiction reasoning and, and this student could use variables well. It could, the student had done very similar problems with variables, but did this. And when I asked him about this argument, he said, I said, did you do a direct argument? He said, um, I started, with a squared is even and a is even, then instead of proving why all the a's had to be even, I proved why all the odds can't be a's. Then I said, what, what type of argument is this? What's going on? He says, well, maybe it's like reverse deduction because instead of reverse deduction, there's his mode of argumentation. <laughs> instead of proving why a has to be even, I prove why all other numbers can't be even in its, meaning a's, place. So to me, he's either doing, he's doing an indirect argument very informally with no clear mode of reasoning, which would violate Stefan, still need his definition of proof. This representation was not acceptable in our community, which would violate that. The uh, representation out, the accepted mode of reasoning is out. And the only thing we have left maybe is you have to assume that odd times an odd, and an odd is an odd as a prior result, right? Because if he knows that already as a prior result, then there's no need for him to go 2k plus 1 times 2k plus 1. So that one, I guess, survives. And I'll stop there. There may be questions for me about this work and my definitions. So thank you. Eric Knuth mentioned that in 20 years, there hasn't been a lot of progress on student success. Uh, even though the literature has grown, the student success maybe hasn't, it really hasn't trickled down to the school level. 
So I was wondering if I could get you and others to comment on what you think might be some of the barriers to that success. And I see some possibilities in the way that Eric talked about proof. So he talked about proof as treating the general case. So does that mean that students are having trouble thinking in those general universal ways? Is that part of the barrier? You talked about how um, examples are often positioned as a hurdle to come over, but actually examples can be very useful in doing proof-related activities. So is that the barrier of they're using examples in a kind of impoverished way or something? Or, or is it that the why it's true, the explanatory power, is that where the trouble's coming in? Or is it in the proving that it's true, the kind of verification power? Is that the barrier? And I'm going to add one more possibility, which is from Orit. So Orit said, proof is a meta-concept that you learn through getting the opportunity to do it. And as you do it more and more, you kind of realize what it is. So is the problem that students can never go down that path because what they're doing in school is something different than proof. Like maybe what they're doing in school is they're learning how to write two columns and they're learning how to you know, write the givens first and they're writing the two prove last and they're basically being taught by the teacher these rules to follow when we're doing proving that seem to the students to be arbitrary. And if that's what they get to do over and over again, then they can never develop the meta-concept of proof because they're never getting to really do proof over and over again. So maybe that's the hurdle that has prevented us from making the progress. So, I mean, I'd quickly add another um, criterion to that list, and this is something that I think Arit touched on in her presentation, too, is that there's very little motivation for students to, you know, to engage in the activity or to feel compelled for the need for proof. And so I think that's I would say that's one of the biggest drivers behind students' lack of engagement and experience with it is, you know, Schoenfeld 30 years ago now had a quote about proof being a meaning, meaningless exercise for most students. And I think today you look at most <coughs> curricula still and that's the, you know, I mean, Kristen's work from a few years back too, I mean, looked at, I mean, even when you have relatively decent curricula, the students you know, it's still not a, a meaningful activity for them. And so I, I personally, I would say that's probably the, the biggest driver behind why students don't engage meaningfully in the activities because they're not compelled in a, into, I mean, it goes back to both what uh, Orit had mentioned too with uh, Gershon's kind of intellectual necessity. You know, that part of it, I think, is a, is a critically missing piece from not just K-12, but even college classrooms. Um, David, though, you seem to be trying to cultivate this. So do you feel like you're building their intellectual necessity for the arguments that they're then engaging in? So that's, so I'm familiar with that work of, you know, Harrell's about intellectual need, and he did that in terms of an in, in, induction article. Wasn't that the correct one? Is the one I'm thinking? Yeah. It comes up a lot in his yeah, DNR work. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I think that's an important consideration. We consider that in Lama and Lamp. Lama and Lamp. The first thing I want to start with is that a lot of the literature has asked people to prove things with no clear um, description of what they've been taught. So I think um, if you come at it from semiotics or, or registries, that sort of thinking, um, then mathematics is a, a collection of symbols and rules that you perform treatments in. And so I think mathematics has rules and before we critique people and not being aware, or not following the rules, they need to be aware of the rules. And so we start there as saying, first of all, in mathematics every response has a claim, foundation, and narrative link. You solve an equation and find the answer is two, 
Your claim is the answer is two, and possibly no other number solves that, and we make that explicit. So first of all, we start with, this is the way you respond in mathematics is with an argument in our classes. Every response is an argument, whether you make it explicit or not. Let's make it explicit. So the first need is that it's the standard in class. And then we go through and teach them the rules. And I say, I think that becomes first. And then we give them some skepticism, and you know, from still need his work. And that skepticism does help build intellectual needs when they think that they're correct over a few examples and then they're wrong. Right, so it depends on how you define need, right? And so if we make it a requirement in classrooms that you respond this way, that's a different level of need than personal need, you see? And um, so we start there, actually. And then try to develop the personal need, but we start with making it just a standard. This is how we argue in math, period, and here are the rules. listening to this special episode of the math ed podcast if you're interested in the work of this group they do have a white paper available and they also have their pmena proceedings article available so i will have some links to be able to get information from this working group uh, in the show notes also, if you happen to be a teacher who's interested in a master's degree or an ed specialist degree, I did want to say that the University of Missouri has some great online programs that are specifically designed for mathematics education. And they're personalized, they're on your timeline, and everybody gets in-state tuition. So if you're in the market for those degrees, please check us out. I think you'll be very happy with what you can find.